This is Daniel Figel, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. This is our third episode in the AI Success Factors series. And today, we're talking about a public sector application of AI. If you think it's hard to get teams to collaborate and work together within a large legacy enterprise, try getting nearly a dozen such enterprises to work together with a government and make an AI project come to life. That's a real challenge, and that's exactly what we're covering in today's episode. Our guest is Richard Benjamins. Richard Benjamins is the chief AI and data strategist for Telefonica. Telefonica is a 50-plus billion-dollar-a-year business. They are one of the world's largest telecommunications companies with well over 100,000 employees around the world. Richard heads up AI there, and he speaks to us today about a project designed to reduce COVID cases. Telecommunications companies have very valuable data about the movement of people and how that movement of people might tie to the spread of COVID. When COVID struck, Telefonica was one of a few firms that came together to pull in some of that data to inform policymakers. Richard talks to us about the problem itself, which seems self-evident, but he gives us a little bit more detail there. He talks about what the results were. In other words, how did this kind of dashboard and this policy information toolkit sort of come to life? How was it used in the real world? And then also what made it succeed. He even goes into a little bit of detail about how he thinks it could have been done better, but we do get into a success factor. As you'll recall, in this Monday series, which we're going to be running for the months ahead, and we're going to be asking you guys what you think of this series, the purpose is to spend between 10 and 15 minutes covering one use case and one most important success factor that made that use case come to life. The goal is, no matter what industry you're in, The complex problems that enterprises have to go through to turn an AI project into real value in the world are things that matter for everyone. This is industry agnostic. It's short, it's sweet, and it's a great way to start the week. This is something that we've crafted based on feedback from listeners, and I hope you find this episode to be as useful as the last two. Our first episode in this series of AI Success Factors two weeks ago is with a member from the Amazon Alexa team who's now with Oracle. Last week, we covered a large a logistics use case from one of the current AI leaders at Deloitte. And today we're going public sector and we're talking about COVID. So a really good mix of applications. And that's a nice preview as to what's to come because we have a lot of fascinating use cases from the startup world all the way up to big companies. So without further ado, this is Richard Benjamins, the chief AI officer at Telefonica here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Richard of Telefonica, glad to have you back with us on the program. Yes, I'm very happy to be here. All right. Well, we, we chatted about strategy before, which is a topic that applies to literally everyone. And there's so many commercial use cases to cover, but you folks have actually been involved in a use case that certainly involves some good for the species related to this gigantic pandemic we've had coming up regarding the your data assets and collaboration with other nations. Talk a little bit about what the problem was with regards to COVID tracking and then how you guys leveraged AI to put this project together. Okay. Well, as you, as everybody remembers, yeah, when COVID started, it was very important to restrict mobility of people because it's a contagious uh, disease, as we all know. So there were huge uh, programs from governments across the world to put limits on people's mobility. Governments, however, had a very hard time in understanding what was actually happening on the ground, whether populations were actually obeying to those restrictions or not. On the other hand, uh, if you understand 
how people in general move around and i'm talking about groups of people never about individual people yeah so this is anonymized yeah, yeah. and aggregated data and then you can actually predict how the virus propagates because they usually propagate towards yeah where there is more movement there is more propagation and even the the models that that the health ministries use and the medical people to predict the covid yeah they can be informed with mobility data usually they are using static models of mobility based on how many people live in cities etc but if you have a lockdown then those patterns are completely disrupted so those ep epidemiological models they are not valid anymore now if you have mobility data on a let's say on a daily basis you can predict every day yeah, for the next uh, weeks what is going uh, going to happen now all this kind of information it's very hard to get for governments in general and that can at the national level at the local level but also at the european level so what happened here is that there is this large association of mobile operators called the gsma and uh, yeah we came together with a few operators and the gsma and the european commission and we and there was a kind of okay what can we do yeah to help uh, with our data to solve parts of those problems yeah? so that's how it started and so there were like 16 or 17 operators in europe that shared on a daily basis mobility data yeah? mobility data you have to see is is like you have between london and between liverpool at three o'clock on thursday there are like three thousand movements yeah that's the kind okay. of level that you share and then between all the different locations in in the area yeah? at the with the European Commission, we went to province level. Yeah? So it says between this province and between this province, at that point of the day, 20 or uh, 3,000 or whatever movements. And with that, you, you can build a map. Yeah? And actually, yes. it, it, it was very clear that when you turned, you, you laid over the map of mobility and, and the cases of COVID, there was almost a 90% correlation with a two weeks delay. Now, in, huh. the, beginning, in the beginning, that was very important because it was uh, th there was an intuition of that but we could actually show that very very well so so this is what that's at the high level what the objective was and so it was data sharing to to let governments take better informed decisions on covid got it okay and lots of complexities and elements of this project to dive into and i know we're going to talk about the successes and and improvement areas as well just to clarify in the data, so what you're mentioning sort of, of course, when you're sharing this information, you know, you're not sharing, a, it's Jim Stevens, you know, who lives at this address, who moved from here to here. You're really talking about this number of people from this province to this province during this, let's say, hour span. So it sounds like in terms of time, there's a certain amount of brackets you added in terms of movement. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't 200 feet to the left, 200 feet to the right. It was province to province or state to state kind of movement. Yeah. And then it was completely anonymized kind of individual people. So it was even more anonymized because it was not 3,000 or 500. It was a reduction compared to the months before COVID. So it said movement, mobility has gone down at 30%, something like that. Got it. Okay, okay. What were the processes to come up with that level of anonymized standard? Because there's 5,000 ways that you could have taken the level of granularity that you have access to 
and turn it into something a little bit more anonymized. There's literally 5,000 ways you could you could move closer to not knowing who this individual person is. Did that standard of mobility day that you've articulated already exist and then you just flicked it on? Or did that have to be negotiated and determined once this pandemic had struck? That depended on each of the operators. But in our case, we already have a business uh, around data where we sell in mobility insights or footfall insights for different sectors. So it's, yeah, we had this anonymization in place, but it is indeed a very complex process. And the main, so for the business, we needed to have this data up to date every month. Yeah. And suddenly we needed to go to on a daily basis. And, and even the anonymization process, if you do it right, it might take 24 hours because you have to do a lot of things. Yeah. So yeah. you have to take out the singularity. Yeah. If there is, behavior of movements of a customer that is unique yeah then you have to take it out then you have to remove all the personal data and then you have to aggregate it into groups and then you have to actually do the differential privacy so you add some noise some uh, non-existing mobile devices just to make sure that you'll be never be able to pick a person out and so that that's how, how it works and then it's aggregated at province level yeah so it's basically statistics what you get at the at the statistical office. Got it. And so what you're saying is maybe some beginnings of that standard existed, but you you all all of these companies in this coalition, you had to come up with, okay, everybody, what are the steps we're going to go through? Because if everybody anonymized in a different way, there's no way you're going to make sense of all that data. So you had to get on the same page with all these other teams. Well, actually, we didn't. Yeah. So oh, every really? company. Send it as is, and then the European Commission had a research group okay. Uh, okay. working on this harmonization, and that's why they couldn't do it at the lower level because there was only commonality at the province level, and they had a hard job in in doing that. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. So the the European Commission, poor them, they had the responsibility of kind of coming up with these standards of anonymization. Yeah, and, and take into account if we would have to come up with a standard, implement the standard, and give to them in the standard, then we would maybe be ready today. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah, much longer. Okay, and this had this this had to be uh, up and running in in a few weeks. Yep. Yeah. So I didn't know if some existing government data emergency protocol for anonymization kind of already existed, or if it needed to be cut in a custom baked. It sounded like it needed to be on some level custom baked and, and the commission just had to figure that stuff out on their own. So that makes sense. You had to move quickly. Talk a little bit about what and how kind of this project was used for specifically, because, you know, we could think about, okay, we can visualize this and then maybe make some policy decisions. We can share it in the form of reports at the OECD or, you know, whatever. How was this put into place and into action? And what were the results, if any, of, of what you guys did here? Yeah, so there were two tools built from this data. One is a, a dashboard where you could see for each of the countries individually mobility patterns and how they relate uh, to COVID. Uh, you could see flow of, flow of people from different areas, and that helped to focus on, yeah, on certain hotspots yeah, that, that could be dangerous for COVID. So it would be detecting that something, there were some hotspots that were not normal. And so they could then investigate whether it was necessary to take additional measures. The other application was kind of scenario planner, and that kicked in when the vaccination was there. That helped to find out, okay, if I want to take 
if I it was about when to do a lockdown. Yeah, so you could say if my intensive care is at forty uh, percent and the R factor is around one point something, now how will what will happen in the coming next weeks if I start my vaccination uh, now and I will do it in four months and six months? Uh, so they could plan scenario ahead of time. Yeah, so. The first one is like looking backwards is more descriptive where you can see how mobility is important for COVID propagation. And the second one is more to some extent predictive where it helps you plan scenarios and where it could give the countries play with different vaccination strategies. Now, the tools are were available only for health professionals and, and ministries and at the European Center for Disease Control. And uh, yeah, and some of them used it because we could see that in the tools and they used it for helping them in, in making decisions. Got it. Okay. So they were they were able to kind of leverage, it sounds like the scenario planner tool would let them say, okay, what would happen under these circumstances versus these circumstances? And then think about what should be our lockdown policies or what should be our recommendations to government, et cetera. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Got it. So- Certainly being able to ground those decisions in the real data of the cases and the real data of human movement could inform policy, particularly around transportation, I would imagine, right? If we're looking at how, you know, flights and trains and cars were sort of moving this disease around and and how those behaviors tended to correlate to the effects they would have on communities, it feels almost like the policies, not just around, okay, when should we lock down? When should we not? But how should human movement maybe be limited to help the spread of this disease. Is it safe to say that that was a big part of this? Or Yes, of course. Well, it's all about movements, yeah? And that movements can be with public transport or by car. But definitely, yeah, it's all about this mobility data. That is the kind of information that they normally don't have. They have just uh, specific statistics of general statistics about how people move around using census information. But that is a static information, yeah? And if it changes every day or every week, then they had no clue what kind of decisions to take. Got it. So we can certainly see the value there. And, and obviously being able to make informed decisions is the ideal with uh, an event of such gravity. I know that for you, Richard, there were areas of the project that kind of you were hoping to see improved or things that you know maybe you saw as areas that could get better. You put some emphasis on that before we started recording here. Talk a little bit about what the next steps would be or where maybe the missteps were and, and give me your thoughts there. Yeah, I say there are several things. Yeah, I think first thing is very important to, is the privacy aspect. Yeah, some, some stakeholders were very afraid of this because it might give the impression that this is Big Brother. Yeah, And even some of the journalists or some of the press misunderstood what it meant. What is the difference between personal data and aggregated data, anonymized data? And that created a lot of stress in the teams. Yeah. So I think one thing is that there should be a very good communication on what is actually happening, because otherwise even politicians yeah, might misunderstand it, and that creates a lot of a lot of trouble. So that's the first one around around privacy. Yes. The second one is this has been all a pro bono activity. Yeah? So the companies have donated their data. And that's one of the reasons they did it as if, because uh, yeah, they couldn't, in such a short time, invest in a new data format standard. But because of that, the richness of the data 
was limited. Yeah, and I think what we need to learn for the future that this those projects are important because actually COVID has cost uh, the world uh, a huge amount of money, and setting up a project like this to help mitigate that, well, is not so expensive. Yeah. Actually, those projects uh, started when COVID was two, three, or four months underway, and they work best if you have them in place when just before COVID starts. Yeah? Because if you know, if it is not widespread, then you can actually predict where it will go. And so you can very t- take very local lockdown measures to actually keep COVID within boundary. So... This is an important uh, initiative that needs uh, proper funding, yeah, and it hasn't got it. Uh, so that's one of the things that is also that has limited its value. And the last part is on the end of the the persons who take decisions. Yeah. So, and if you like, take at people who take decisions, that's a whole new way of working for them. Yeah. So they take the decisions in the normal way. They're not uh, used to having a, a new information feed coming from data every day to take it into account. So the usage of these tools, to some extent, they have been used, but not as much as I would have expected. And that is thinking a thing of digital maturity or data maturity or digital mindset that companies have gone through this transformation, but I think many uh, public administrations still have to go through that transformation. So it's a lot of training and evangelization and explanation of how do you work in this new context? Yeah, I mean, that's extremely hard, even in the enterprise. And obviously, in the public sector, it's even stickier. The other thing is, somewhat unfortunately, I, I think in the enterprise, if it's in somebody's best interest for their career or for you know, profitability or what have you, probably we can lean them in the direction of adopting technology X, Y, or Z. It feels like the incentives for why people do certain things in in the political world are just a little bit more varied, right? Sometimes there's maybe things, the people that we're governing, maybe they want to see certain kinds of action, you know, maybe maybe they feel more confident with certain kinds of action. Maybe we got got elected by a part of the population that believes one thing. And so we might need to kind of keep that narrative going, assuming that we want to be you know, elected again. And I'm not saying that anybody's in, any politicians are intentionally out here trying to spread the disease and be bad. I'm just saying they're wrestling with motives that are very different than, hey, if you leverage this technology, it'll help your career and help your profit. They've got all kinds of other concerns as to whether or not they want to pay any damn attention to this thing. That, that's very true, yeah, because sometimes they can know things that they actually don't want to yep. know yeah? because they prove them <laughs> incorrect. And that's very hard for a politician yeah, or a gov- somebody who governs yeah. to accept that. So very sensitive, very sensitive things around that. Yeah. And yeah. that's really definitely also a challenge. Well, I guess in, in closing here, in terms of an insight, I mean, this is a, a fascinating use case and maybe a, a bit of a you know, canary in the coal mine for how companies might collaborate around future emergencies and leverage data to, to hopefully inform better decisions. There is a big issue here that you brought up around the adoption, actually taking in this data. One of the challenges is you could interpret it a hundred ways. If you gave that data dashboard to somebody with two PhDs and they just believed kind of spiritually and politically tracking and preventing humans movement was evil, they would probably be able to paint a picture with that data that would pretty well back that up. And if you gave it to somebody with the opposite political kind of fanaticism, pretty well dogmatic about believing that, you know, 
lockdowns equal virtue, lockdowns equal safety 100% of the time, then they'd probably be able to paint the same picture. So even the data probably could come along with a story from people very well schooled who would never tell you they were biased, maybe don't even realize it, to come up with self-evident truths that are quite opposite. So yes, we need politicians to use it, but man, how, how do we make it turn into anything other than a magnifying glass for whatever biases we already have? Well, that, that's a good question, yeah. And I think this is where ethics uh, come into play. Yeah? I mean, if you want uh, to interpret it in an extreme way what you see, and actually that's what's going to happen, yeah? Any political debate, they start, they throw with a lot of numbers, yeah, that are only in their favor. Yeah? So, and I think that's, that's a moral issue that I think, of course, you can't avoid that, but people should not want to do that. Maybe that's a bit idealistic. But that's, I think, how it should be. Yeah. Well, it would probably take a whole nother podcast focused on the the philosophy of data ethics and policy or something like that. And Richard, unfortunately, we don't have another time for another round of that. But I, I think that some of the ideas you've put on the table are definitely things that folks who are building tools for policy absolutely should consider. This is a real life use case of the pros and cons of those kind of tools. And I appreciate you being able to go under the hood and share with us some of your experience. So, Richard, thank you again so much for being able to join us. Yeah, you're welcome, Dan. It was really a pleasure. So that's all for this episode. Hopefully there were some useful tidbits around how data can be shared across silos, in this case, across companies, to make an AI project come to life. I thought some of the nuances about how data sharing actually came to really add value as opposed to just add confusion was one of the bigger sort of ahas from today's episode and from Richard's direct experience. One thing I want to mention as we wrap up is that we have another series kicking off starting in the middle of this month. So on the 14th, which is a Monday of March, we are starting a five-part series. It's going to be every single weekday of that week. So from the 14th all the way through to the 18th, we're going to be publishing an episode every day on how to achieve ROI with early AI projects. We're speaking to leaders from companies like Intel and other firms that are well over $50 billion in top-line revenue. We're also talking to startups and consultants in this space to gather their perspectives on what are the most important things to make sure that we achieve a measurable result. It's going to be an entire week of varied perspectives from enterprise and startup leaders, and you're not going to want to miss it. So tune in on March 14th for our series on achieving ROI with early AI projects. I'll make sure to mention it in the introduction to tomorrow's episode. And without further ado, I'll wrap this one up, but I do want to say our Tuesdays are still kicking here. So we're really glad to see the feedback from the AI Success Factor series. Tuesdays, we're going to continue to cover AI use cases, trends, and strategy, just like we always have. So I look forward to catching you in tomorrow's episode, and hopefully you'll be with us for the 14th when we're going to kick off the series on AI ROI. So thanks again for being a listener. I appreciate the heck out of you, and I look forward to catching you tomorrow.